Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash Internet for details. Hi guys, I hope you're well. As always, before we delve into this week's content, we want to share the itinerary with you so you're all familiar with exactly what we're going to be discussing on this week's episode. Before we do that, we of course have recently heard the tragic news of the passing of Kobe Bryant, along with um, other people that were on the helicopter and of course the pilot. And so we just want to pay tribute at this time and share our love, our thoughts and our prayers with their family and loved ones um, and wish them all the best in this very, very difficult time. So we had a very special guest on the episode in Adam Hurry um, and we discussed his career and how he uh, got into his line of work. Um, we spoke about the origin of his book, Football Clichés, before then going into listeners' questions, which involves speaking about the hierarchy at West Ham and whether or not it's time for a top-down change at the club, uh, Liverpool's current um, vein of form and whether being invincible is more important than having the highest points tally. And we also spoke about Manchester United's current issues. Stay tuned. Hello listeners and welcome back to yet again another episode of the Beautiful Game podcast. As always, I'm your host Budge and I'm joined by my faithful two co-conspirators Dot and Dej. Gents, how are we doing this evening? Yo Budge, I'm good. How are you bro? I'm, I'm very well. I've had a very good weekend actually. Mm-hmm. feel very well rested. Got some life admin done as well. So uh, good. feeling uh, uh, good for the week ahead man. Liverpool wanted to disgrace themselves <laughs> today. I don't know why they've done that. So I'm just going to talk about it now. Shocking um, performance. Get, get but yeah. Yeah replay it is fair play how about you Dej how are you I'm very very well thanks for asking you know mm-hmm. looking forward to this episode 
yeah. as you said, I feel rejuvenated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm ready to give 110 percent for this Fantastic. episode. Fantastic, that's what you want. <laughs> Dej, a, a, a match fit Dej. 100%. A, a, a typical football cliche. Should <laughs> yes, I say? yes. Did yes. you get the memo? I love that. I love that. Budget's head. It's definitely going to be a podcast of two halves. Right. I'm looking forward to it. Looking fantastic, fantastic. So. Um, you might not have picked up on the uh, cliches that some of the boys just uh, threw in there in, in, in the discussion. Um, and it's with a very good reason, because we are joined in the studio by a very, very special guest. Um, he's previously written for ESPN and The Guardian uh, and was at The Telegraph for about five and a half years. Um, he interestingly uh, had trials for Swindon Town Ooh. when he was a youngster, Ooh. but was uh, rejected for being too small. Wow, wow. that's wow. uh, that's an change. Honestly, yeah. exactly that. Um, and he's currently a staff writer and editor at the Athletic, and is the author of the famous book Football <laughs> Clichés, which is a study on the unique language of the game. And so, without further ado, we welcome our very special guest. Adam Hurry to the platform. Welcome, welcome, welcome. welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. I was so looking forward to the extended introduction. I've seen, I've seen people have been getting the big build-up. I thought one day that could be me. Here I am. And here you are, indeed. That was, that was beautiful. That tears in my eyes. And factually accurate, which is also important. So, yes, um, yes. yes uh, yeah, delighted. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming down. We know, um, you know, it's it's it, it it's late and it's on a Sunday evening and whatnot. But we really do appreciate the effort. My pleasure. And you are uh, coming down and, and joining us. Cool. Um, and, and we're really looking forward to this one yeah, most yeah. definitely. So take us through your line of work. Where did you start? How did it all begin? Okay, well, I took what now appears to be kind of the classic, kind of mid two thousands, early twenty tens kind of route, mm-hmm. which was. I started off with a blog of my own, really generically named football blog, like everybody else did at that time, Mm -hmm. without any kind of motivation to break into the industry. I didn't know what the industry was. I didn't know how you do it. I had no idea of even the concept of writing about football for a living. It it, just didn't dawn on me at the time. I had a decent job, I had a solid job, and I was focused on that, and then I just did this in my spare time. And and the blog was basically born out of pub conversations and conversations we had after after Sunday League. And And it kind of slowly kind of evolved into talk about the language of football which I always found interesting I grew up sort of devouring um, football coverage from books and videos and it just kind of just absorbed all of this stuff and I found some of the language really interesting and and so that's what the blog became the blog became about the language of football and kind of the, the ridiculous phrases that we use and the words we use about football <laughs> that we use without thinking and, mm, and, we, and, we, and, yeah. and they're words and phrases we don't use in the rest in the rest of our mm, lives yes. so it was really curious to look at and it, and it dawned on me that no one else was talking about it and, and football was getting to the point where it was really well covered by that point. It, we were hitting saturation point. Mm-hmm. Online was just getting crazy. You, there, were, there were so many places you could read about football. And, of course, they were all using the same kind of language. So I thought it was it was really interesting to write about. But at that point still, having identified that niche, I was still writing for my own amusement. I was still writing for my own entertainment. The idea that four people would come to my blog and read it was crazy. The idea that 40 people would come and read it because I wouldn't know who they are. Who are these people? Other than, <laughs> other than, my, <laughs> other than my immediate family. Yeah. I had no concept of the idea of strange, strangers reading my, my work. It was mm-hmm. just absolutely bizarre. So at that stage, it was just for my own entertainment. So I did that for about 
three or four years really and then then twitter came about as a thing and it felt natural to start up an account to kind of go alongside it because it was a place where you could throw out kind of unformulated thoughts that didn't have to be crafted into a piece with a beginning and a middle and an end yeah, yeah. and and that's how the kind of the platform was originally intended it was just for kind of it was it was like a facebook status update somewhere else mm. and that's how it started so and but I, you know i kept that theme going the football cliches thing and and the twitter account kind of grew quite naturally and it and it just felt easier to focus on that than, than blogging and uh so it kind of grew and grew and, and it got people's attention i hope because it was a niche and because it mm. was an area that no one else was talking about mm. and looking back i guess it's easy to become a world expert in something if you are the only person in the world that cares about it mm. um so <laughs> that, that's basically the shortcut to becoming an authority or and fortunately, other people kind of took interest in it. So I began to sort of get pick up bits of work here and there around my job. Again, didn't think I thought of it as pocket money. I thought of it as, you know, stuff just to do on the side. And, and But as the profile grew and then I got an offer in 2014 to join Telegraph to start a project that they were, they were hoping to launch just ahead of the World Cup. And uh, I managed to sort of cling on there, really, just to get a few shifts and, and learn how things were done at a newspaper and and on the website of that newspaper. Because it's hard sometimes to dovetail those two things. The newspaper and, independ- uh, newspaper and the website work very independently sometimes. So it was, it was a kind of crash course in how a newsroom worked. I turned up expecting to see paper flying around loads of angry people. And it turns mm. out it, it, was, it was much more sedate than that. I was really surprised. So... I learned about how just things worked, got my foot in the door that way, but at the same time wasn't in any kind of rush to do anything because I just didn't know what could be achieved Mm -hmm. in the industry at all. Um, And just kept on writing, kept on writing for them whenever I got the opportunity and then uh, finally joined them full-time in 2018. Okay. Mm. So I'd freelanced them, I freelanced everywhere really and uh, finally got what I thought was my long-term job and was really happy to be there and then uh, then middle of 2019, out of out of the blue, Alex Kajelski gives me a call. <laughs> and at, then, at that point, I thought it was at Times. And I went on, I was on holiday at the time. I thought, why does he want me to come and join the Times? I don't fit in there. That's not going to work. <laughs> and then slowly I put two and two together, read a few articles that kind of exposed what was going on. And then it turns out The Athletic was launching. And I've been there since September. So I'm um, trying to do as much writing as I can. But primarily, I'm one of the editors there, one of the sub-editors, mm-hmm. working on the copy that comes in every day. And, uh, and that's my job now. So hopefully learning the ropes as an editor now. So, yeah, still learning, still finding out how the grown-ups do it and uh, hopefully one day I'll be as good as them. So it's interesting because most people that go into writing or editing go to, you know, university. Yeah, of course. So would you say you've had like a unorthodox, you know, entry into, into I don't know. writing? It feels, it feels less and less unorthodox um, now looking at the people I work with. I'd, I'd say the people that I know and, and talk to on Twitter, I'd say it's maybe a 60-40 split. The 60% are the people who've went and did the journalism courses mm. and and started off maybe doing work experience and getting their foot in the door that way and doing the real hard graft but that but they've gone on they've gone on to become good reporters and 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 with a good nose for a bit of news and that's never been in my blood that's never I've never been a kind of news hound at all it's, I'm I'm I'm, I admire the people that have got the stamina and the perseverance and the persistence, none of which I, I possess, <laughs> um, to go and do this, to go and do that sort of stuff because yeah. it's important. And a lot of, lot of the times it's really important stories and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So that's one side of it. The other 40 um, kind of pursued my route where they, where they were writing kind of fairly aimlessly about football mm-hmm. for their own entertainment, for their own amusement, maybe with half an eye on how it could turn out. Um, and then slowly sort of getting bits of work here and there to the point where they became well known. Mm-hmm. And, and, I count myself in this number as well. It's kind of strange that any of 
us should be thought of as authoritative voices because mm-hmm. we know we've watched about as much football as anybody else mm-hmm. who are reading our pieces mm-hmm. and we know about as much football as they do so it's very it would be very hard for me to ever claim to be an authority on a subject other than the tiny little subject that I, that I write on yeah so um in in that respect so I, I would never see myself as a kind of senior member of the fraternity at all because you've when when I thought about football writing as a career, my 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 first thought was the Henry Rinters of this world. You know, the yeah, real yeah. the real kind of untouchable big dogs who yeah. just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who've been doing it yeah, for just yeah. thirty so years yeah, yeah. and they just knew everyone and they knew how it works <laughs> and they could they could they could fall asleep and then just wake up and suddenly have eight hundred words lying yeah, next to yeah, them. It was yeah. just like it, it felt like it was effortless for them. But um, yeah, so it's it was it just got two different types of people in two different routes. And uh, but each of them have their merits. Well, each of them have their merits. But I think on the very rare occasions that I get asked for advice on how to get into the industry, which is crazy, anyone would ask me that question. But I say I've got no advice, frankly. The only advice I ever give people is is to try and try and find a unique thing to write about because that will get people's attention. As far as uh, you know, learning skills, it's 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 up for grabs. Really, you can do whatever you want and whatever it takes to get into the industry but i don't know anyone who regrets going down the kind of it kind of vocational path and doing the courses because they've all turned out to be really well-rounded journalists and i wish i was i I don't i can't call myself a journalist because i don't have those skills i see myself as a a writer and just about an editor which i'm learning to do but journalism takes a lot of skill and a lot of dedication so what skills do you think have benefited you in your career so far Mm. well i mean i i I have so many weaknesses. I need to read more. I don't read enough about football. And reading reading about football is where you pick up uh, sort of a well-rounded view of, mm. of what you're mm. talking about. And I don't read other people's work enough. Not not through arrogance. Just I have the time. I don't have the time mm. to mm-hmm. soak it in. For, for for ages, podcasts were a mystery to me. I thought, how do people have an hour to listen to mm. one podcast, let alone three or four <laughs> yeah, a week? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, tur- yeah, it turns out now I sort of finally sort of started to commute to work instead of sitting in my bed all day. Um, that finally <laughs> turns out to be the time to do it. So, uh, yeah, I just... I, I feel like you need to soak in more information than I currently do. But I don't know. My entire existence professionally um, is founded on this one simple thing, which was just having my own little niche. And that's Mm. how that's how I managed to kind of forge that way in. And uh, uh, it's a bit like um, it's a bit like a natural resource. Once that runs out, once I've run run out of ideas, <laughs> in that time, I'm screwed. I am absolutely screwed. I really am. I wrote I wrote a piece the other day that's about it's got the A to Z of the transfer window. That was yeah. that was that was an idea I would have had back in 2010. So you know I'm really struggling. <laughs> Going back into my 20s for my ideas, then we are in real trouble. But it it, it really is. Um, it's one of those sort of light bulb moment sort of things because. When you think about it, it's, it's it's one of those things that like I'm talking about football cliches. It's like mm. you know everybody says them, everybody uses them, but yeah, until until you sort of highlighted it, no yeah. one it's stopped like, to think. It's unconscious. Where, it's yeah, unconscious. It's like where where did this come from? Where, where did it like, start? Like every week, we usually say, "Oh, this team is going to put that team to the sword." Yeah, mm. where, did, where did it come? Terminology yeah. that you use every day, and like when I heard your podcast, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like you're actually talking sense. Here. Yeah. That's an interesting one because um, a hell of a lot of the language of football comes from like warfare, but not even like recent. Well, we're not talking World War Two. We're yeah, talking like yeah. medieval warfare. Yeah. You talk of things about like war chest, which is like yeah. a, uh, which gets like a minimum of one hundred and fifty million. You've got to go and spend on players. Who would say that now? Yeah. <laughs> it's such an old fashioned concept. It putting teams to a sword. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You want to be using a gun at least. <laughs> uh, it's just really old fashioned stuff, and it's it, yeah. it's, it's it's a really strange set of words and phrases. Really strange languages. 
And but you're basically you're absolutely right. Mm. These are things that we've all said, all of us, unthinkingly. Yeah. And and only when it's presented back to us do we realise how ridiculous some of it is. <laughs> and um but cliches serve a purpose. Um, yeah. The, the definition of a cliche is something that has a lack of original thought. That's yeah. a bad thing. But other than that, they, they fill gaps and they yeah. kind of keep the debate going. If if you as an expert were talking to someone who didn't know about football at all, you'd need to use cliches to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that just happens on a kind of microscopic level for the rest of football coverage. So we need cliches. We need them mm. to fill because there is a lot. There's an unbelievable amount of airtime and, and page space dedicated to football. Yeah. And they've got to fill it somehow. You can't keep writing originally about football. You can't keep speaking Very originally true. about football. Yeah. Otherwise, you would start to sound quite ridiculous because you keep having to find new ways of talking about yeah. it. So there are so many, there are so many just phrases that we all just lean back on mm. to talk about football and that's why they exist that's why they serve a purpose but some of them are just quite silly quite yeah. weird and so it's important that as we use them unthinkingly every now and then someone like someone like me pops up and sort of presents it to them and say look yeah. why do we talk like this yeah can can I, I, what else, what else is quite interesting um is just how the language sort of develops as well as you as you go through your like um as, as you get older so the the first thing that I did was I I sort of thought back to the uh, the good old days of playing Sunday league football mm-hmm. and some of the terms that we used to use box them in lads it's nil nil <laughs> um, you know we got the wind in, in our favour this half mm. that, that's test the keeper these sort of phrases you use and you this it's it's just second ingrained, nature yes. it's ingrained in you I want to write five thousand words on simply box them in as as mm. a Sunday league tactic because it's instinctive as soon as that throw in is given deep yeah. in the opponent's half like, oh, yeah. box them in yeah, we yeah. all become Pep Guardiola <laughs> as if we're tactical experts we know what possibly might happen yeah. from this throw in do you know what's going to happen they'll just throw it up the line yeah. and we're both going to have a bit of a header then there'll be another throw in that's what's going to happen doesn't matter if you box them in or you don't exactly um, but yeah. I, I love it um, the most crushing thing you can say at Sunday league uh, the the thing that will just reduce you to rubble is when someone on the other t- other side within the first five minutes just says they don't fancy it they don't want mm. it and <laughs> it just makes you think maybe I don't want it mm, maybe I don't Second fancy it yourself, yeah. maybe I don't want to be here this is awful you lose five and anything yeah they were right yeah absolutely kills you um, and uh, and and if they say that to you specifically like if, on the very rare occasions I had to fill in in goal which is just the worst job in the world and someone says you don't fancy it you don't fancy it you don't want it oh it's the worst it's the absolute worst because it just reduces you to absolute Sunday league rubble so um, that's it the psychological so, the yeah. psy- psy- psychology so of the game so where did you play what position did you play I played, I played absolutely everywhere um I started off when I was a kid. I was sort of like the um, a, a walking cliche as a kid. I was like the, the the tiny little striker who would sprint onto long boards and score fifty a season. Wow! Th- mm. Then I went to university and discovered eating, which was a uh, wonderful, uh, <laughs> a wonderful sense. few years. Yeah, yeah, makes and sense. Um, so then Picking I sort of, habits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> moved back to become this kind of elegant ball playing centre half uh, mm. on, on the Hackney Marshes, and that that was that was another thrilling time. But also discovered um, that hamstrings can tear as well. Mm. So that was oh, awful. No. So I became kind of injury prone sweeper. And then, um, yeah, I basically, basically played in every single position because yeah, I'm basically total football. I'm two-footed. Um, so you still playing now? Um, try, I, well, it's mostly five-a-side, which, mm. which as much as I love it, you can't really consider it as real football. I miss Sunday League. I actually play in, um, play in a veterans league, which is basically just like Sunday League used to be, but just about 10% slower, but mm. also 10% angrier. There's a lot of really angry old men in veterans mm. football. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I could, I could definitely write a whole new book on that. Just, just the sheer 
passive aggression of Southwest London veterans football. <laughs> um, just a lot of dads who are really unhappy with life and, grand- and granddads as well. So it's their opportunity just to sort of... Yeah, yeah just so at least all, yeah, just <laughs> five days worth of, of looking after their family and working just explode onto a pitch on yeah. Sunday morning. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite amusing to watch, but I can only laugh at it. I, mm. I never take any of it personally. But um, but yeah, it's kind of in your blood until you physically can't play Sunday league anymore. You feel like you have to drag yourself out there yeah. because yeah. So, kicking so a Adam, football sorry, you're is so that, satisfying. Sorry to go all Adam Hurry on you yourself, Bob. <laughs> you're saying you're the typical utility man. You can play yeah. everywhere on the pitch. I actually, I got that award when I was sort of in my <laughs> team. I, I got like the uti- utility player of the year or something like that. And it was just, <laughs> Like, well, this is this is, is exactly. That even a uh, yeah, is that even yeah a exactly. What do I do with this? <laughs> yeah, it was like club man of the year or something like that. It was just like, yeah, you're basically nice to have around, but you're not actually that good. Um, but that was that was yeah. But I, I'm happy. To, I'm happy to be a sort of mm. Holland 1974 style. Could do a job for you in any position kind of player. I don't mm. mind that. So how is it at the Athletic anyway? Because we know that you've been there for a few months. Yeah. Obviously, what we see from the outside looking in, we see that it's a great environment. Like mm. when we see everyone working together, you've got a lot of podcasts going on at the moment. It seems that everyone works in a good ambient. So how is it at the Athletic on a day to day? I guess well, there's two things to say about it, really. First of all, what you see from the outside is very much what it is on the inside. It's a very simple operation. It's a very straightforward idea. It's just good quality writing mm. from from writers who are kind of allowed to go out and to a reasonable extent do what they want, write about what they want, or what they think that their club's fans are interested in. And then and then it's edited to a decent standard and it's presented in a really clean way. There are no mysteries to The Athletic. The, the, the business model that a lot of people have debated ever since it's launched is a very simple one. But, it, but, but I can understand why it, it it's a matter of debate because it's a new idea. Very few people have tried it here. The second thing is, and this is quite crucial to to why it's such a good place to work, is because everyone started at the same time. The senior writers, mm-hmm. the junior writers, the junior editors, and and Alex, who runs everything in the office, like he's an absolute machine. <laughs> we all started at reasonably the same time. So everyone's on the level. We've got this huge WhatsApp group where everyone's, everyone's helping each other. And so you'll see some of these stories that got about five, six names on the byline. And... and I get to me that's quite unusual. You don't see that very often, and it looks like it looks like that everyone has. It looks like we just didn't know who to credit the story to. But what it means is all these five or six people have gone away and dug away at their own little mm. niches, and they've got information and that, that that are useful to the story. And we and put it all together and create this thing that couldn't be written out elsewhere because we just, other places don't have that many people involved and, mm. and can get that story. Mm. And um, so it's it's unique in that way, but it's not a complicated concept at all. And and as a result, it's not a particularly complicated place to work. It's, it has to be high quality. It has to be good. It has Definitely. to be interesting. But it doesn't, we're not, we don't have that burden of kind of SEO. We don't have that burden of appearing on Google at any cost. We don't have to stick a, you know, a, a 30 second advert video in the middle of everything and I understand why that happens elsewhere and I understand why other websites are so difficult to read because you have to pay the bills somehow mm. um, but it's just a new way of doing things and you know when I first started and and at that point I didn't really know how much uh, about how it truly was going to work so I was approaching it from from the perspective of, of a reader just like everyone else and I was looking at the finished articles and thinking wow this is actually quite sparse this is actually maybe we've gone in the other direction we don't have any we don't have anything we have a picture at the top and then it's just then it's just words and it's just stuff like to read and it's like you had to it was actually took a long time to get used to it just completely clean reading experience uh, but that's how it is in the office it's, it's mm. very straightforward and and we've got that kind of time and space to make things look good and read well and do a good job on it and it and it's it's 
it's really kind of liberating. But um, I haven't been in the industry long enough to become kind of jaded by it all. So uh, mm. there are there are some senior writers who have been plugging away at local newspapers for years, and and mm. they feel that, that this is that they can't believe that this has come around. This they're just delighted that it's that it's come about. But um, there's something in it for everyone, and uh, the fact that we all started at the same time it means it's incredible spirit. Uh, so how have you found like the transition from? old print media mm-hmm. into what's seen as the you know new age um i guess well some of the principles still apply really I and mean, there's still deadlines to be hit mm-hmm. um we we don't have to we don't have the immediate deadlines of say a newspaper so we don't really kind of do l- sort of um like late minute match reports we're not getting stuff in for a yeah. print deadline like yeah, that so, yeah, we, yeah. so one of the crucial aspects of the athletic is that everything gets space to breathe a little bit. We don't mm. have to react as quickly as other yeah. places simply mm, because they have two requirements. One, they have deadlines to meet for a newspaper. And secondly, they have to get stuff out because they need to be seen to be reacting. Mm-hmm. We set our stall out very quickly and said, we're not going to be doing that. Um, mm. We know that you can get your immediate reaction and, and immediate news elsewhere. You probably go to the BBC or, mm. or the Guardian or somewhere like that. You're established places. We don't want to kind of try and muscle in on that. So we just went down and did things a little, di- little differently with a little bit more critical distance and time to breathe mm-hmm. so in that sense it's a little bit slower pace at first than than a newspaper it isn't quite as hectic but um but we're kind of we're open to different ways of doing things. We we, we could happily do a reactive piece mm-hmm. a couple of hours after a game if we felt we needed to. And, and that's the kind of freedom and flexibility mm-hmm. we've got mm-hmm. because we are an idea that's kind of growing and evolving and we're happy to try new things and see what works. We can be flexible. We can move on our feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big newspaper can't do that because... Yeah. Um, a, a big new newspaper's website will have will be full of stuff that they're putting out in the newspaper next day, plus a few extra bits. Yeah. It's like turning around a super tanker if you wanted to change the way you were doing mm. things. Every, you'd have to get 150 people doing their jobs entirely differently. The Athletic, we could change that on. A, we could just turn on a sixpence of do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think we're just we're kind of growing and learning, but at the same time during that process we can just react really quickly to, to different ways of doing it. Adam two points for me very quickly mm. one is a bit cynical what is the best podcast in the office to everyone which one is everyone enjoying the most um what in, internally which one do we think is is going the best yeah. I, <laughs> it's difficult, difficult answer. I mean Ornstein and Chapman yeah, it was all that was going to get mentioned well that's always going to grab your attention because you know that I mean Chappers is Chappers is an absolute pro. It's just mm. you just know you're in safe hands with Chappers. Mm. Ornstein, well, we all know what you're getting from Ornstein. You're yeah. getting, <laughs> you're getting <laughs> cold hard knowledge. That's what yeah. you're getting from him. Yeah. In fact, um, what I didn't know about uh, David Ornstein is he used to be he used to be on BBC News Round, mm-hmm. which was yeah. which and uh, <laughs> dug out this video of him from 2004 of him talking about some transfer rumours, and it was just really weird to- of him talking in a way that was accessible to like sort of a ten year old kid who just come back from school, and uh, but you can kind of still see that enthusiasm in him. He yeah. loves it. He absolutely yeah, 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 he, yeah, his yeah. energy. I just I just wish I had like a tenth of that energy to put mm-hmm. into my job, um, and uh, so it's a good chemistry, and I think it worked quite well. So uh, that's a that's a nice thing to wake up to on a I think it's a Monday morning, isn't it? Yeah. And or, or is it Tuesday? Tuesday yeah, yeah, Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not on the podcast side. You've you listened to my podcast. I clearly don't know how a podcast. Works. I love, um, I love um, zonal marking as well. Michael Cox he's doing some great stuff. That's the like a TED talk more than a yeah, podcast. Really, yeah, yeah, really educating. Listening. Even read the gender as well. I'm mm. a massive Liverpool fan, so I like getting my Liverpool yeah, again, fix from that's that end. Star quality again. Yeah. It's just big name writers, mm. you know, with inside information and just big stuff to tell yeah. you so yeah, Jimbo putting in the work you know I've been following him from his <laughs> Liverpool Echo day so some hang on to his every word I'd, 
I, I didn't follow him before. I, I, I literally followed him on mm. Twitter, but I didn't really kind of engage with his, his work. I didn't read about Liverpool stuff and, 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 and the Echo, but sometimes I just sort of watch one of his tweets just appear and then I just sit and watch the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> some, of, some of our writers, the numbers they gather, I mean, I, it, I, I don't want to overemphasize the importance of it because it's just Twitter. And I know it's exposure, I know it's engagement, that sort of stuff, but sometimes you just sit and watch the numbers just kind of explode. I'm sitting it's there on tweets. 16 there. seconds, it's incredible. 100 likes. And, yeah. and sometimes it might, might just be the team news or it might just mm. say sort of Salah's gone down injured or something. Mm. It, it might not be something momentous and you'll see sort of 16 likes in the first 10 seconds mm. and some some think who are these people <laughs> who are those 16 people that within 10 seconds of finding out that Trent Alexander uh, Trent Alexander Arnold is fit to start have gone I really like this I must like this immediately I just I'm just fascinated yeah. by the behavior I'm fascinated yeah. by these like small countries worth of people that these people can, yeah. can gather as followers yeah, yeah. It's, fascinating. No, it's, cult. it's funny mm. because like you say that Adam but I look at your tweets and I'm like Dej Adam has got a cult following mm. like you tweet and it explodes mm. within 10 minutes and see 500 think, likes or something, or something I think, I think a like cult that. following is, uh, is it's it's small but it's well formed like yeah. you know they're dedicated they're loyal yeah, yeah. they know, they know they which side of the bread is buttered um, they're, they're a good bunch I do enjoy it but, uh, I think I mean a crucial part of my Twitter experience compared to actual proper journalists is that I don't have any opinions and if I did I wouldn't tweet them because I don't okay. want to get into arguments I don't like mm, arguments yeah. certainly I would get in an argument with stre- um, with uh, uh, brave strangers on Twitter, yeah. so um, <laughs> trolls. Yeah, 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 yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, um, so uh, yeah, just don't have any opinions is my advice. Mm. Uh, but if you do, then you've got to be very, you, you know you have to you just got to be very confident about them basically. Mm. But yeah, it's, um, but yeah, uh, big followers. Uh, I mean, we saw you know recently you know your work appear on Match of the Day. <laughs> <laughs> you went viral. You know, I was watching Match of the Day mm. and Adam Hurry came up from Chappers. <laughs> so how did that feel? Um, I found I found out about it. Um, via my aunt who I think messaged my mum who then messaged me saying you've just been on match of the day and I kind of had this queued up because someone it was about um, it was about Alison's celebration mm-hmm. um, when Salah scored <laughs> yeah. against United wasn't yeah. it and uh, so Alison ran the full length of the pitch and I, and I just said oh, I'd love to see the you know the average <laughs> speed graphic because match of the day the graphics on match of the day are can be quite adventurous sometimes. I mean, about 10 years ago, they pioneered this this bizarre kind of Metal Gear Solid style thing of a referee's eyesight, his his range of vision, like sort of laser-guided gu- laser eyes, and whether he would be able to see an incident at the time. And it just looked ridiculous. And it was ridiculous, but it, it's kind of... You've got to throw these graphics in to make the coverage look a bit more entertaining, and sometimes it has an analytical reason. But um, in this case, it wouldn't have had any... It would have had no use, but I wouldn't wanted to see it anyway. So I tweeted about it, and then Chappers said, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> I didn't know they took requests. I'm definitely... I'm, I'm totally... I'm going to talk about, can we not have Danny Murphy on anymore? We'll see if and um, just things like that. Sorry, Danny, but you just... You're just so miserable. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'll see how far we can push that request from from now on. But yeah, I didn't know I had such an influence over the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation. And like, final point before we move on, what I've mm. noticed about the Athletic is that after like a key moment, that's when they release an article. For example, Mo Salah scored the winner mm-hmm. against Man United to make mm. it 2-0. Mm. And within 10 minutes after, Simon Hughes made a long piece on going back to Egypt, speaking to friends, family in Cairo, mm. Egypt, to talk about Mo Salah's upbringing. And I've noticed that's when you probably get the most traction after a relevant activity on the football pitch for mm. a player. I mean, at that point, it looks like we had that like 
done ready. in advance yes, ready yes, to go that... absolutely not no in those two minutes he just flew over to Egypt <laughs> <laughs> got on his bus <laughs> and chatted <laughs> to all those people it's amazing how quickly he can turn around his copy um, but no um, the, it's, it's nice to have topical hooks for things and you can but at the same time you can get bogged down in kind of anniversary stuff so publishing things on the 25th anniversary of this or the 10th anniversary of that and they're, they're good opportunities to publish stuff but we, d- we don't really t- tend to get too hung up on that sort of thing if it's a mm. good story people want to read it anytime with that salad it just felt like we were waiting for mm. a definitive moment yep. uh, even in even in the short term it didn't have to define his career or his season or his Liverpool career it just had to be a moment where Salah took centre stage so mm. it was it was old style publishing mentality it was like this is the moment that we, we push this out to people and get them to see it because everyone's talking about him. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it, I think it's a sensible decision. Mm. But we have that piece, and and again, it's it's nice to have those pieces just on the back burner, ready to go. So, Adam, yeah. does that get ran through you or? No, absolutely not. Okay, no, so I, no, I'm like it, I'm so... like right at the bottom of the food chain okay. in that respect. Okay, yeah, I don't okay. make those decisions. Mm. I, I check whether a full stop is in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll never see me making the big decisions at the Athletic. No way. But um, but no, yeah, we we have very open conversations in the office mm. about about how. Things Things should should be done, and it's very democratic. There is there isn't you know Americans don't fly over and tell us how we should be doing things at all. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're kind of it's and that that really helps a healthy atmosphere in in a working environment when you know that if you've got an idea or it, on a mm. big scale or a tiny scale, you know it might just be a style thing in, in the copy, but mm. to know that you'll be listened to is just really really fulfilling. I'm not slagging anywhere else off. Everywhere yeah. else has a very defined hierarchy mm-hmm. because they're old style and they're newspapers and there's editors who who are untouched touchable and it, but it, it just turns out that everyone in an office who's writing about football or editing football has an idea about how it should go and mm. and these things do get discussed really really well and it's just that one of one of the reasons why it's so fun to be there I think. yeah great stuff all right so we've got um a few listeners questions that we're going to um share uh, and, and and ask we put out a tweet and we asked um everybody to uh share what they you know what what they wanted us to discuss on on the episode so we're going to go into that i actually had a really really quick question before mm. we did that um adam and this is basically harping back to um again the point on football clichés and you know your experience when you were young when you were younger mm. um obviously having trials at swindon town and being turned away because you were deemed too small <laughs> um isn't it interesting how football clichés also move with the times and, mm. uh, and change over time because you you look at it back then you know you, the the archetypal player or the best kind of player um allegedly is the player who's big tall strong yep. um good in the air very physical mm. but how times have changed with like new tactics and and, and philosophies implemented by different managers and now a, a small player would, would be lauded like you know you've got the diminutive little playmakers Absolutely. who play in, you know in the pockets and stuff like that and just how the sort of the narrative changes over time is quite interesting isn't yeah it? completely it's, it's just a it's just a cultural shift mm. um it took us a long time to realize that small tricky little players were of value mm. we, we we thought it was a Spanish thing we thought it was an Italian thing mm. we thought it was a Portuguese thing and then when so many of their creative talents came over and played here that became just an influence on young on kids here yeah. and that's yeah. how we went to play I mean and it's we just took so long to catch up yeah. in terms of football style so but I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that at youth level and we, I'm talking at real grassroots level bigger kids will still stand out that there will mm. still be a, a real value attached to kids who can out muscle players who can mm. be a big physical yeah, presence yeah, yeah. because that will always catch the eye and, and subtler talents like ball playing are still going to be harder to identify mm. but there's because there's been so many 
stories of, of English players who were turned down as kids because they were too small or mm-hmm. they weren't physically strong enough. And then they turned out to be really good players, but mm-hmm. they missed out on on a really, really good start to their career. Mm-hmm. Because that's happened so many times, everyone said, well, we can't take that risk anymore. Yeah. So you've, we've gone in the opposite direction where, where clubs like, let's say, Chelsea are farming these these kids from the age of like eight and like bringing them all together and making mm-hmm. sure we don't lose any of them, make sure we yeah. keep them all. And then that has, that happens the opposite. But it has the same effects, but for the opposite reason. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll find a happy balance in the end. But yeah, it's good to see little kids like I was getting. <laughs> I'm not saying I was just kind of playmaking number 10 or anything like that. But yeah, maybe I should have made it after all. <laughs> right, okay, Dej, take us away then uh, with the first question from Yeah, this question is from Kadeem Simmons. Um, he said, a lot's been made about fixture congestion. Rashford, Kane have been getting injured, etc. What's the best way to alleviate the pressure on teams? Would you scrap FA Cup replays, League Cup? What kind of changes should be made to domestic calendar to give players a better break? People say they get paid handsomely, so they should play week in, week out, but they're human at the end of the mm. day. Can I can I kick this one off, please? Basically, what I feel is that the FA Cup starts too late on in the season. Um you get to January after a busy, busy fixture, festive congestion, and then you've got the FA Cup. So it's not that teams don't care about the FA Cup. Teams are thinking, wow, I finally have an opportunity to rest some players and play a reserve team. So at the beginning of the season, there's a lot of breaks in terms of you're playing once a week. Um, there's international breaks a bit too many international Mm. breaks at the beginning of the season why not throw the FA Cup in between that and start it off early why is the FA Cup the only cup competition that starts off midway through the season it Mm. doesn't make sense the FA Cup should be throughout the entire season and I think that can ease up the fixture congestion Mm. And eventually we'll see a better product in the FA Cup because we'll be seeing teams like Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal playing their best teams and taking the cup seriously from day one. Mm. Um, What I would say is that I feel that the replays need to be scrapped. Mm. Um, But what I'm scared of is that the more changes you make to the FA Cup, the more you kind of water it down. Um, so I feel that I think there needs the to be a Cup few touches well, on it. Like replays, even from a you know watching point of view, mm-hmm. when you have to go for a replay for like let's say a lesser side like a Tranmere today, you rather get it completed over ninety minutes because that gives them a competitive chance of going through. And also, I was reading um, a statement or a document by Thief Pro. They released this document in um, August. It was called At the Limit, and they actually said that players are being asked to play at their limit without sufficient rest or recovery. Over the past seven years, the volume of games have gone up by 38%. Mm. Players' peak used to be the 20, or it used to be when they were 27, 28, 29. Now it's becoming shorter. Mm-hmm. So, surely we need to look at this if we want to protect the quality of our product. I think when it comes down to player fatigue, I think the main thing that we, we need to focus on more is not the number of games. Um, I'm surprised it's gone up by 38%. I mm. think, I mean, we they played a hell of a lot of games back in the day. The the top division used to be much bigger. They used to be way more teams. They used to play way more games. And, and in the championship now, they play 46 games a season. So I don't, I don't think the number of games is an issue. I think what needs to be looked at is is just how intense the football is compared mm. to how it used to be. There was a study done recently which, which said that players do an X percent number more high intensity sprints mm. than they were doing 50, 10 to 15 years ago. Now, 10 to 15 years ago, in football terms, it doesn't feel like that long ago. We, 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 football wasn't that different to watch. It didn't feel like it was different to watch. But 
they are playing way more intensely now. They, and and you can just you can feel it. You you watch someone like Harry Kane, who, and Harry Kane is a very good case study for player fatigue. Mm. Um, not just because he's injured now, and not just because he basically plays all the time, but, but if you look at the way he plays, he works so hard. Every running doesn't seem to come naturally to him. It doesn't come easy. He's not like Thierry Henry. He doesn't glide around the yeah. pitch. Everything he's got, he puts into running. And he, he, he's like he's dragging an entire family behind him when he runs. It looks like really hard work. So when you've got players like that breaking down, you start to realise the real stress and, and strains of modern football and just how difficult it is. And then there's pressures on them to keep performing at a high level every week. There is no slack. And so once you have all that in mind, where do you find the solution? Can they play a fewer games? Nobody wants fewer games. Sponsors don't want fewer games. The... Um, the organisations who run the competitions don't want fewer games because they because they want to get the maximum exposure for their competition that they can. So the FA Cup's not going to budge. The League Cup probably won't budge because for as long as there's a sponsor for the League Cup, there will be money there. Um, so it's little things like when you take away replays and, and you, you talked about how that will detract from the FA Cup as, mm. as a spectacle. Now, the magic of the FA Cup is it's, it's such a weird tradition and it's mm-hmm. some, there are parts of it that can, that can be done away with without really anyone crying too many tears about it um but what we need to be careful about is and if we listen too much to Guardiola and Klopp is that we we make these decisions or we make these opinions based on the very very top level of football and what we think will suit Man City Mm. and what will suit Liverpool but you have to we have to mind that there are 92 Mm. football league clubs and their interests are just important um one very good suggestion I saw was that when a when a tie is drawn the two clubs get get together and decide will we decide this over one game with extra time if necessary, or would, do we want it to go to replay? Okay. If, if one of the clubs says, mm. no, we want to do it the traditional way, then that's it. They, they do mm. it If they both agree, do you know, neither of us can be asked with an extra game ten days in 10 days' time on a midweek when Makes all our sense. players are knackered. Yeah. Just don't do it. And that wouldn't affect the integrity of the competition mm. because it would be a kind of democratic thing. And this idea that the occasional replay can be quite a romantic thing back at the home of the lower league club if they get a draw mm. at the big club that's still sacred because they probably they still want the replay but yeah, and they benefit financially yeah. from it as well, well they benefit, they benefit more financially from playing at the big stadium of the big club mm. um, it, it, it's great to have that tie at their ground for, for all sorts of reasons for narrative reasons it, it looks great but they'll get more money from, from the away leg if that's what mm. they really care about mm-hmm. but I think the only way to the only way to get rid of replays is if both teams decide it other than that it, it's not that it's a tradition it's just that you you know, you need to keep some parts of the competition mm-hmm. kind of yeah, as but, they are. But Adam, you say that like if we listen to Klopp and Pep Guardiola, you are talking about the top ten managers. But yeah. we had League One managers coming out saying, "Listen, FA Cup replays are not needed." So this is you know trickling down to the rest of the Absolutely. footballing pyramid. Yeah, they've got well, they've got different different priorities, but it all boils down to one thing: they've got other things they want to focus on, like getting mm. their team promoted. And and promotion for many teams is the be all and end all. They need that money, and mm. getting promoted to the Premier League for Championship clubs is absolutely the ultimate thing. So the FA Cup run becomes secondary. But what what I would say is is the FA Cup just by natural evolution has become a very secondary competition. Mm. Winning the FA Cup does not mean what it used to mean, and the reason for that, and it's and, it, and it's so important that we that we recognise the reason for that is because there is so much football to watch. There's so much football mm. around. Um, I watched the FA Cup game on BBC today. BBC don't get very many live games. The BBC treat it like it's just the most incredible thing. We've got a game of football <laughs> live on the BBC. But you know what? There's so much football on Sky. There's going to be 18 other games I can watch today if I really, really wanted to. Mm. Football's just become full. Mm-hmm. And 
and the FA Cup just doesn't mean as much. And that's mm-hmm. it's just natural evolution. And we saw that on, you know, yesterday with um, Thomas Franks as well, the yeah. Brentford manager. Mm-hmm. He made nine changes to yeah. his team playing against Leicester because yeah. he prioritised, you know, the league. Yeah. They're fourth or fifth in the table. They've got a midweek clash against Nottingham Forest. And he said, you know what? This is my priority. We're moving into a new stadium. I need to get this team up. Absolutely right. But- 20 years ago, that would have been a disaster. It would have been unbelievable. It would have been a tragedy. Now... Maybe or well, maybe five years ago it would have been kind of frowned upon. Go, oh, I can't really do that. It's the FA Cup. You know, can't do that. It's the magic. Where's the magic? Mm-hmm. Now, no one really bats an eyelid anymore. Everyone knows what people's priorities are, and uh, <laughs> but we we have no right for the FA Cup to be magical. Um, mm. Just like we have no right to expect a televised football game like, say, Liverpool United, we have no right to expect okay. that to be a good game of football. Football mm-hmm. will be what it will be. Yeah. You have to, do, and you'll just have to just enjoy it, whatever, whatever happens. So the FA Cup has no right to be magical because the magic of the FA Cup is based on big teams losing to smaller teams, and mm. that's a very shaky magic because most of the time that won't happen. Mm-hmm. So if you if you want um, if you want that to happen more regularly, big teams will have to sh- field weaker sides, and that all in turn affect the integrity of the competition in some people's eyes so yeah. the FA Cup yeah. cannot win mm. so a longer term mm. strategy um, I was thinking about you know the modern day you know things are getting shorter people's attention spans are getting shorter yep. do you think longer term the 90 minutes should be reduced we've seen it being trialled in tennis with the mm-hmm. next gen you know mm-hmm. tournament so do you think this might seep into football well I've got two opinions on that first of all the language of football will be torn apart uh, the, this concept mm. of the 89th minute mm. or just 90 minutes as a thing loads of websites would have to change their name you know just all sorts of things yeah. 90, <laughs> min- 90 minutes is a sacred concept in, from a language perspective but you know what if if overnight I woke up and then suddenly football games were just an hour long I wouldn't mind it would be absolutely fine mm. uh, that may be because my attention span has been shot to bits by Twitter <laughs> uh, which is definitely a, definitely a thing but do you know what an hour seems just the right amount of football half an hour halves seems fine absolutely if that had been the case forever I don't think I would mind I wouldn't mm. I, I wouldn't be sitting here going do you know what I wish games were 90 minutes long hour and a half that'd be nice I wouldn't be saying that I think and that, that preserves the players as well yeah if they, uh, and you play the same number of games we'd be building up to them we'd be enjoying them then we'd be reacting to them and perhaps we wouldn't even know after about 20-25 years we wouldn't even notice that it ever happened so yeah reduce games to mm. an hour it's not that controversial if you think about mm. it and just a final point obviously what Des said earlier about um, teams fielding their B team obviously West Brom played um, West Ham yesterday um, Billich made nine changes and West Brom B ended up beating West Ham so <laughs> yeah, I think maybe we can talk about West Ham <laughs> <laughs> Was there a, was there a, um, a listener's question in on West Ham? Maybe we could we could use that as a segue to, to go into that. I think there was yeah. essentially one, right? Kadeem again. Okay, no. fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Kadeem Simmons from Morning Star newspaper. Mm. He said, "Has the past ten years of Golden Sullivan been successful? Has moving to the Olympic Stadium been worth it? Shouldn't they have just knocked down Upton Park and rebuilt like Tottenham? A lot of local businesses have had to close as they rely on West Ham for business." Is it time for them to go? Let's let's be honest. This move to the London Stadium has been catastrophic for West Ham. I mean, the disdain on some of the fans' faces. I know mm. a lot of West Ham fans. Um, I work with one season ticket holder, and he's like, he's fed up. He wants Billich back. <laughs> he actually wants Billich yeah. back, and I just think the ownership there is, is awful. Again, I listened to um, the Ornstein and Chappers pod and they were saying some of the infrastructure at the club is some of the worst they've seen. Mm. I mean, it's definitely the worst in the Premier League and you'll the be infrastructure. lucky. It's terrible. Mm. The training ground, they're still using porter cabins. And but I apparently, mean, like, last year or two years ago, they moved to a new facility. 
No, apparently the facilities from what, what, what I read and what I listened to that the facilities at West Ham over champions they're league one standards mm-hmm. some league one clubs have better facilities mm-hmm. than them and I just feel again like you're only on the pitch for 90 minutes so your structure behind out off the pitch needs to be really to a high standard mm-hmm. and we're seeing this in the modern game we see Man City Chelsea Liverpool all the top teams are brilliant so much so into, much into yeah. this mm-hmm. and I just think West Ham, they're lagging behind. And honestly, like if they return to the championship, I don't see them coming back up anytime soon because mm-hmm. there's a lot of players there that are on huge wages. Mm-hmm. And if they go down, they're going to lose those players. And they've got quality players there. They've got Felipe Anderson, mm-hmm. Lanzini. I know he hasn't looked the same since that nasty injury. Hala, 40 million. Yeah, and and, and the players yeah. have not done mm-hmm. it. So I just They started think... the season off very, very well, but they seem to have, you know, gone back to their old ways. Pellegrini came in, you know, with a huge status. Mm-hmm. People were thinking, you know, he's the man to take them into Europe. But they're almost like an Everton yeah. you know when you look at the structure behind exactly. the scenes it's not in place when you look at Liverpool Man City everything's tailored so that when the first team manager leaves something will still there'll be a concession mm-hmm. plan but mm-hmm. when I look at West Ham's hierarchy I mean Karen Brady she's been lauded as this you know superb businesswoman I always see her year in year mm-hmm. out on The Apprentice but when you look at what they're producing on the pitch mm-hmm. you know it doesn't stand up to the test of time so mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of the very secure constants in my life, certainly in the time I've spent ever watching football, is that West Ham are yeah. mental. <laughs> they they are crazy club, and and if West Ham ever got their act together and start becoming a really stable club, sort of challenging for Champions League places, which isn't going to happen because it's just <laughs> such a complete closed shop. But if they, if they ever became the kind of bastion of stability and it was a what a great model they've got going on there, great recruitment, I'd be like, what? what? This is weird. I don't want mm. football to be like this. Mm. West Ham being absolutely bizarre <laughs> are an absolute constant in my life and I don't want it to go away. It's not because I don't like West Ham. It's just because that's all I'm used to. It's all I know. But... Over the last maybe three or four years, it feels like stability has become so important. Uh, it, uh, having your right model in your club, mm-hmm. the recruitment, mm-hmm. your scouts, your director of football, all these people whose jobs I don't actually understand have all become very, very important. And you look back and, you, and the last club who made a good job of being unstable were Chelsea and perhaps still do. And, and they, they've gone on this kind of never-ending quest to become a stable club with a model that everyone admires. But really, their best success has come from when they've sacked a manager, got a new one in, and he's just about kind of made <laughs> yeah. it work. But unfortunately, towards that kind of end of that era, maybe two or three years ago, they just thought, you know, we can't keep doing this. We, we stumbled across the Champions League out of nowhere <laughs> after changing managers about eight times in one season. Chelsea, the only team that, club that made that work because they kept throwing money at it. That obviously is not sustainable. Yep. So chaos doesn't work anymore because a team like Liverpool, who have got their act together in an unprecedented way from top to bottom, they've got a manager who isn't going anywhere. They've got a set of players who love being there and they all love each other and they're going to be there for ages. <laughs> they've, got a set of fans and they've got a stadium which somehow they've managed to kind of keep improving. It was, it was generally regarded as, as being a bit rubbish, but they've managed to kind of redevelop it and which is important because not having to move ground like West Ham have done which has been a shambles <laughs> um, so Liverpool have become basically they've ticked all the boxes as, as a modern football club going forward and everyone else is trying to play catch up City are kind of there but then they've got a manager who may or may not be there will they be as you say will they have that kind of success, succession plan when he leaves so they've got a kind of cloud hanging over them but they've got enough money probably to get through it everybody else has a massive question mark about how their club is run 
um, they, they have a vital cog missing somewhere and mm. they're all playing catch up and because they're all in pursuit of this one thing which is stability and that's really hard to get because mm. it's a long term thing and you do need as we've said a lot of money to get that going Liverpool are just streets ahead in that respect so everyone else is playing catch up but um, stability sounds really boring and it is really boring and I, I, I quite like the, the, an era when you could just sack your manager get someone else in and it would just all become suddenly rosy again <laughs> but, um, but West Ham will slowly realise that that's not the way to do things but we talk about Pellegrini he, yes he came in with a huge reputation and he was a big name but what does that even what does that mean for a club like that he's mm. not he's not going to sit there at his desk and right I'm going to change this this and this Pellegrini gave the air of a manager just turned up and said well okay we'll do things this way and if it works great <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not that he had to be West Ham through and through because that's mm. that's a that's a different mistake you can make at say Man United or something like that but it's it was just such a weird appointment and you knew that when Pellegrini left they would get someone completely different in. There's no continuity. West Ham's the range of managers that West Ham have it's had. Crazy. It's just crazy. There is it's there's no crazy. plans. Mm. I just I don't I'd have no idea what it takes to run a football club, but I bet there are loads of people out there who are running football clubs who yeah. don't know either. Yeah, that's a key question I actually wanted to put to Dej. Like what does it say about West Ham? You have David Moyes, you say, you know what, you're not fit for purpose we're getting rid of you you bring in Pellegrini mm. wow Pellegrini comes from China he's going to do this outstanding job Pellegrini fails you get rid of him and you call David Moyes again to come and do a job that you sacked him from two years ago so that, that's a question I honestly need to, to hear your answer what is what is the thinking behind that Dave? to be honest I think when you listen to people talk about West Ham there's a sense of like delusion yeah. <laughs> they think they're a big club the West Ham way this gets banded about but mm. when you look at it they're they're just a normal club. They're mm. not at that upper echelon. They're just pitching in below. And yep. even before the season started, I was thinking, you know what? They could do a Leicester mm. and try and break into the mm-hmm. European places. Mm-hmm. But as the mm. seasons progressed... Their chance for activity says, it certainly suggested that they had That was some their plan. Of, yeah, but yeah. I think yeah. when they say the West Ham way, because obviously I'm very close with a West Ham season ticket holder, but he says like... Dimitri Payet is a perfect case in point. Mm-hmm. He gave, he made them have hope. Mm-hmm. They just want to see good what attacking player. football what on the player. pitch. But they haven't got the playing facilities. I mean, a lot of West Ham fans I talk to, they always mention Mark Noble. Mm-hmm. They're saying, how can Mark Noble be playing week in, week out in this West Ham team? Yeah. They think he's kind of systematic of the problems yeah. at the club. I think the traditional way that you could break into the top part of the league has changed completely. Um, the, the, the top four or five places of the league are, are completely shut off. The, the, no club is going to break into that. The levels of revenue you need are just way beyond. A, so would you include like Leicester, Leicester into that? Or? Well, Leicester, Leicester are just a very... They've stumbled across a really, really good squad. The way mm. they've turned themselves... Mm. Um, the way they've kind of, kind of shed that skin of that title-winning squad and turned themselves into something new is incredible. I see them as another one-off. So um, I, I'll accept that. Leicester are But again, when you look at the it. recruitment, it's very consistent. Yeah, I yeah, think absolutely. it was Steve Walsh that was yeah, there yeah. before. Now you've got John Rudkin. Mm. They made shrewd acquisitions. You know, Kante was there for a poultry sum. Yeah. Riyad Mahrez came in for a poultry sum. Yeah. And now we're seeing that, you know... It's a good model to follow when you, mm. when, you, when you kind of buy low and sell high like mm. that. But teams like... And it feels like West Ham and Everton are on their own little island in this league. <laughs> And the old idea of breaking into the European places, for example, getting getting from mid-table in the top division to, to becoming a kind of into the UEFA Cup, as it used to be, was thought of as a big thing. Now, I feel like it's just a bit of an inconvenience to have to qualify for the Europa mm. League at the start of the season. I don't think fans crave European football as much as they used to, because European football used to be this real mystery, it used to be a huge thing. I don't think West Ham fans are that fussed about playing in the Europa League. Um, I don't really know what West Ham fans are fussed about anymore, because it's really hard to... 
establish what their ambition should be. I don't think mm. they. I don't think they see themselves as a, a Champions League club ever. I just don't think you can target that anymore. It's, it's so it's so out of reach. So where where do you target after mm. that? European football is just it's a bit wishy washy. So I don't know. <laughs> is it a poisonous chalice? It think? is a bit. I just don't. I just don't. I find it hard to think what West Ham as a club or their fan base see themselves. What what is the limit of the of their capability? Yes, they they could conceivably do a Leicester, but that requires great planning and also a great deal of luck. There's there was no guarantee that Mares, for example, was going to turn out to be like that. There was no way that you could ever foresee that Jamie Vardy, who is a complete one off of a footballer, would still be doing it at thirty two after mm. playing his entire formative years in the lower leagues. Those things do not happen very often. Mm. You can you that you can have all the structures in place, but you'd be very lucky to have either of those two things, let alone the rest of it that's happened. So I find it really hard to see how West Ham and Everton in particular are going to progress in any meaningful way over a really long period of time. We're talking 10, 15 years. I just, it's, it's just so difficult to break into that top level. And just it's just these kind of vague concepts of, of directors of football and sporting directors and recruitment and things mm. like that people talk about, they're really hard to do. Mm. And uh, um, I don't think the average fan who goes to West Ham really cares about recruitment strategies and things like that. I think fans mostly would just be happy if they're winning more often than not. Yeah, uh, but the stadium is a huge thing. The stadium was a no-brainer in the sense that it cost them barely any money to play in it. But I completely agree from a footballing perspective and from a club perspective and from a fans' perspective, it made more sense to redevelop your old ground into mm. something better. The London Stadium is terrible. I've never been, and I know it's terrible. Everyone <laughs> says it's terrible. I, I can't think of a football stadium I haven't been to where I have less desire to go and visit because I know how rubbish it would be Mm. Um, and it has nothing going for it and it's weird because they're basically trapped in a stadium that no one likes but it's still essentially quite new but it's also rubbish because it hasn't there's no substance to it it's not like Mm. a mega Spurs Stadium what an incredible place yeah West Ham Stadium, which is not much older in the grand scheme of things in the grand history of football, is terrible. It's an athletic <laughs> stadium. We all know yeah, that. Well, yeah. So where did West Ham go now? Do they like, oh, we need another new stadium? Are they going to go build one somewhere else? That takes a lot of planning and money as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just... Um, but I, I go back to my original point. I, I just can't accept the idea of West Ham ever being a stable and successful club because... Are kind of happy as as they are now. It's just a constant, like an old <laughs> yeah, teddy bear that you can't throw away. <laughs> West Ham being rubbish is that teddy bear. Right. Okay. I think you've you've got a question, haven't you? Got? Yeah. So the next question is from Brendan Arthur underscore H. Um, and the question is: In considering whether this Liverpool side are the greatest ever Premier League side, which is more important, going invincible or beating Man City's one hundred points? If neither, then what is the defining moment slash stat for this season? I think, you know, Manchester City, I think last season they amassed 100 points. So if you want to be deemed better than them, you have to break that 100 point tally. I mean, there's no point being Mm. invincible and drawing, you know, 10, 11 games and getting 96 points. So for me, that Mm. answers the question. I think beating that points tally Mm -hmm. shows your supremacy and says, you know what, they were the best. And that goes down in history. I completely agree. Points are exactly what football is all about in a league. You, you, you try and get as many points as you can and you're playing every game to win it to get a maximum mm-hmm. number of points it's not rocket science so beating that points total would make them the greatest Premier League mm-hmm. team from a purely statistical basis they'd probably have to go and do it again and again not at that level just keep winning a few more titles and then they're in the conversation of being one of the greatest Premier League teams of all time if that really is a, de- a debate worth having because there are so many different mini eras in the Premier League you've got Mourinho's Chelsea that they, they were they're very hard to compare to another team. You, if you compare them to the Liverpool of now, 
they're just they're just a completely different way mm. of going about things. I don't think mm. it's actually that valuable to compare them. The Invincibles thing is a really interesting one because it it has it has a narrative significance. It, it it's a it's a it's a nice story and it's a re- and it's an achievement in that sense. But it's not something it statistically speaking from a cold hard point of view. It's not something that's worth emulating. Really, I, I, I think, think you get a golden. I, I remember you say you get golden a, Premier League. For mm. me, as a Liverpool fan, <laughs> you can call me crazy, Adam, but I want to go on invincible um, and win the league, yeah. rather than winning the league and the Champions League together really? this season. What as would, a it, Liverpool mean, what would fan. it mean to you if, if Liverpool kind of was that the question? Or Champions Champions yeah, but that's, that's what I'm trying to say. I just want these Arsenal fans to shut up. Adam, <laughs> to be, <laughs> that's to a be totally thing honest with you, we all want that. We all want that. You know, you can see Budgie's face. I'm not happy with what I'm saying, but I just feel that. The Champions League and the Premier League double is it gets done. Was that the question? It's, it's not, but that's what I'm trying okay. to say. I'm mm. just trying to. Go, I'm going a bit on a um, tangent, but mm. what I'm trying to say is that I think going invincible is massive. I think people are playing it down. I think that's a massive thing to go 38 games in a Premier League season without a single defeat. I think it's, I think that's a bigger achievement and, and than getting 100 points. You would, you, you because, would, you because would go more than that than the, and then winning the the yeah uh, because we Champions won, League. We won the Champions League last season. So you're saying mm. that you'd rather go invincible and end the season, let's say, 95, 96 no, points. No, but I think if Liverpool do go invincible, they're going to smash 100 points anyway. Mm. I, I, but the case, question, that wasn't the question. That wasn't the case question. guaranteed. But I think it being being invincible and being undefeated is a symbolic thing. But it doesn't... I don't think it marks you out specifically, individually, as a great football team. I don't yeah, but think it, it marks does. out the in Arsenal. Ar- oh, in Arsenal's case, absolutely. It's a great team. But if they if they hadn't finished that season unbeaten, I don't think their reputation would be much less. I genuinely don't think so. They were a great team. Mm. Um, but in this case, 100 points will always beat being invincible, but neither of them automatically make you an all-time great Premier League, Premier League team unless you kind of go out and repeat the, pro- repeat mm. the achievement next year. So as your, a Liverpool it, fan, mm-hmm. I'm looking at statistically, if we end the season 104 points, mm. we're the best and that stands the test of times. No one can say... Perfectly good measure. I, mm. I, would, mm. I, would, I would completely agree with that. Um, the, going unbeaten and drawing 12 games does mm. not compare to that. Yeah, it, but, but having said that, it does sound good and we, we should always remember that things, that things that sound nice and can be written about beautifully are perfectly good. Can make the cliches out of them as the well. Invin- <laughs> yes, absolutely. The Invincibles is a great thing. It sounds really good, mm. but it just isn't as good as getting 100 points. It just isn't. Anyone who argues the otherwise is, is, is mm. wrong. Yeah, but I'm looking at, at this season. Liverpool are on course to smash 100 points. So if they go unbeaten, it's very, very likely that they're going to beat the points tally that we've ever seen in the Premier League. So I'm judging it on that I'm gauging it on that if Liverpool go unbeaten they're easily going to smash 100 points so what I'm trying to say is that if they go unbeaten and they win the league breaking Man City's record I don't think there's any debates to, to have whether this Liverpool mm. team are the greatest Premier League team in, in, in the history of the league in my I think, humble I opinion I think it would be very interesting to see the difference of opinion between fan and player because mm. I think Dej might have raised this point a little while back which was talking about as a player at the end of the day, when when it comes to the end of 100%. your career, mm. you're judged on the trophies that you've won. Yep. And there yeah. isn't necessarily a trophy, so to speak, for going in, in invincible. So if it is the case, you of, get a golden crown. Yeah, you get a golden crown. Mm-hmm. But it's like if you if you, if you're given the choice, okay, go in, invincible or win the Premier League and the uh, Champions League and win the double. It's like it's it, it's it's a bit more of a credible thing for you as a as a player. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, as, a fan, as, as a fan, it's different, different because yeah. you get the bragging rights. Yeah, saying, of course. Well, you know, mm. we uh, as as obviously uh, don't, yeah, don't, you think, earlier, don't you think you go in history to... and say, you know what? Like, I was part of the team that went invincible. Mm. You don't say I was part of the team that won the double, maybe treble. You can say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. 
But yeah, I went invincible. I That's still, a big thing. It's still a hugely symbolic thing. It's still, it's still, it's still a great thing to talk about. But it's just, you know, <laughs> if, if football is still a very clinical sport, and it should be kind of judged in terms of points and goals mm. primarily. Then you can talk about style and and grace and that sort of stuff. But um, I just, but I also think, and this might be just me getting old, but football has quite a short memory. When mm. we all come back together again in August and start again, I barely remember who won anything the previous season. I completely <laughs> shut off from what happened the previous season because we're basically starting again. And football really has, it seems to me, and maybe it's just the saturation coverage and, and the way, the, just the volume of how we talk about it. But when we get back to August, everything seems to be just completely wiped clean. I don't think we'll be talking about Liverpool season much in August. It, we have that month or so where we... We will celebrate their title drive and just how brilliant they were this season. But I just it 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 feels so much harder now to create this long term legacy than it would have been twenty or thirty years ago. Adam, isn't that indicative to today's society? It's the microwave generation. Microwave generation. (laughs) Get this onto the next. Get this, use this. I don't like this toy anymore. I'm going to get a new toy, and that's just Mm. what football follows now, right? And that's why it's hard to create this sort of legacy. But at at the same time, we end up going in the opposite direction, declaring things to be the best ever because we can't really be bothered to spend too much time thinking about it over a long term. Mm. And that's kind of that's kind of it's kind of a a recent impulse. But things that happen recently are better than things happened in the past because they're fresher in the memory. Mm. That's a fairly human thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we need to be quite careful, I guess, of of declaring anyone the best team in Premier League history. But if they go on to get the best points total, Mm. they're also Automatically right up there. That's the metric I'll use to gauge it. Like mm-hmm. If you see Liverpool 106 points, there you have it. Yeah, best it's team a sort in of the point social you only used to see under 12s leagues. Mm. Um, it's, but what we really need is a team at the bottom who've got like a goal difference of minus 154 or something. Wow. Like that. That's what, yeah. what we really round it off. Yeah, that's <laughs> a breaking record. So they, currently you're saying Man- Manchester City 100 points team is the best team in Premier League history? That's... Yes, yes. Okay. So when Liverpool, obviously they're on course to break that, that will now make Liverpool the greatest team in How many year. points are Liverpool on course to get, do you know? I think it's one eleven if they continue. One eleven. Like this. Yeah. yeah, but again, with Liverpool, obviously I don't want to go on a tangent, but I think <laughs> the way they're going to navigate the Champions League will show what they're you know going to do. Do they are, yeah. rest players for the Premier League? Or, or do they rest players for the Champions League, sorry? Or mm. did they approach all the games... You know, wanting to win them. And it doesn't feel like their squad is that massive. Like, mm. it doesn't feel like they've got 22 options. It feels like they've just got a really solid core of players and mm. they just don't ever go away. Um, I, 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 I could be completely wrong. And Klopp always talks about how strong his squad is and how, and how he's got so many options. But they just don't feel like a sort of Mourinho-era Chelsea where he had a, a, a ridiculous embarrassment of riches where he almost, <laughs> number of players he didn't really need. But Liverpool mm. have a very kind of lean squad. They don't feel like they, they are this army of options. Um, so it would be interesting when he gets to that kind of February-March situation where you'll have a big league game in between two legs of, of mm. European. That's always the classic, are they going to stumble here? And if it was closer in the league, that's the real real pinch point for anyone's season but they're so far ahead that they probably don't have to worry about mm. it so if they do rest players in the Premier League and, and lose lose a game there will be some Arsenal related gloating but that would be and, and that's fine and, that, and that's absolutely natural yeah. and that should happen because that's football and that's and that's exactly how fans should behave but I, that's not really going to have much of an impact on the, the le- I say legacy because I don't want to keep using that word but the the what we will remember of this Liverpool season won't be hugely affected by them drawing against I don't know Villa in the middle of March, nobody's going to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Um, just before we wrap up, I think we wanted to uh, spend uh, some time talking about uh, Manchester United. Of course, uh, they absolutely hammered um, uh, Chanmere today. Uh, was it six uh, nil? Six nil. Yeah. Final result. Yeah, we've Paul we've been Mickey to watch. Mellon, yeah. yeah, we've been to watch Tranmere. And obviously, they're aside struggling for confidence at the bottom reaches of the mm. League One. Mm-hmm. You know. And it was to be expected. Yeah. Once you saw that team news, mm. you knew what was going to happen and it ended up happening. Mm. No, but to be fair to Man United, I think they played really, really well because that had the potential to be, you know, tomorrow morning headline, mm. Oli has to go. Like, it's time mm. for him to go. Cut up but you can definitely see skin, that, you know, you know? Tranmere are going places by the team that Manchester United put out. Jesse Jesse Lingard got on a score sheet, didn't he? That's uh, his first goal in uh, over a year, I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, is 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 that uh, a platform for him to kick on and and and, you know uh, replicate that in in the Premier League now? Do you think? Um, Adam shaking his head furiously. (laughs) No, this this game was this game was a really lovely just one off. Anybody who reads into this in terms of Man United season is 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 a bit deluded. <laughs> um, I mean, it it was set up in in such a lovely kind of cliched FA Cup way, terrible pitch and all that sort of yeah. stuff, and and uh, sort of a, a lower league team who were going to rough them up and that sort of stuff. And then and then within minutes, you just saw Harry Maguire hmm. saying, "Right, I'm not having any of this." Not in a not in a particularly demonstrative way. He just strode around and said, "Look, I'm not going to let this pitch affect me." He just and and I just I love watching him. I love watching Harry Maguire because he just took control of the whole situation mm. stunk stunk one into the top yeah, corner master, master. absolutely beautiful goal because and, and he should do that more because I love watching him charge up the pitch and then the whole that whole attitude just poured through the team and they just said right we're not we're not going to make ourselves look foolish today but all those goals as nice as they look they were all way too easy they were just mm. very easy yeah, yeah. quite nice to watch goals and uh, as a side note um, it's quite satisfying in a game like that where you watch all six goals turn the TV off and then uh, check the score about three hours later and realise you didn't miss any more goals it's quite mm. a satisfying mm. thing so I didn't have to watch a good advert for an, a game being an hour long because it's exactly what, right what I would say you are talking about Harry Maguire and I think we just want to have a little analysis into what he's brought to this Man United team. And for me, Harry Maguire has regressed regressed, um, since he's gone to Man United. I think I was never really convinced on the signing. When I saw the 80 million transfer, um, I was like, when you pay 80 million for a player, you expect them to have base ability in terms of like they've got the full package so mm-hmm. you're fast you're strong you can bring the ball out of the back you're aerially dominant um, you're commanding so was it a and transfer fee that made I just made think with that- Maguire I didn't see him as a massive upgrade on what Man United had at the time and I don't mm-hmm. think you can comfortably comfortably say he's better than Chris Smalling I don't think you can but to be honest, when we talk about price prices, that's well, not they, the players. It's not his fault. He doesn't this, put the price this, on his own end. This is my and point. And when you compare Harry Maguire, when he was at Leicester, it was a mm-hmm. settled structure. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. was built. He's going into Manchester United. When you look at the structure, it's discombobulated. Mm. Yeah, but surely, surely that's an indictment on Man United. You're meant to be getting players that suit your structure. And this is what we're talking about. For me, this is like an oxymoron. You're going to play a high line. Mm-hmm. And you're getting a defender that's used to playing in a low block or plays in a free at but the when, back. But when we look at Maguire, he's the first piece in Man United's new jigsaw. Mm. Whilst Oli's come in, they've come in and they said they want to, you know, have a British-based structure. Mm-hmm. That's why they were linked with Longstaff. Yeah. That's why they were linked with Sessegnon. Because Oli said, this is a long-term project. Mm-hmm. And the first pieces to that 
you know, Jigsaw or the Mosaic, because Budge likes to call it, you know, was to bring in Wan-Bissaka and, Small, um, Wan-Bissaka and Harry Maguire mm. and Daniel James. So I don't think this is a damning indictment on Harry Maguire himself. I, I agree with the point that Dej made about um, you, if you're going to sign a defender, you want to sign a defender who suits the style of play, the mm-hmm. style of defending that you've got. That's absolutely fine. The crucial thing about big money defenders as opposed to signing a big money striker mm. is if you sign a big money striker or winger, they're going to although they'll fit into a tactic they are bought because they they can do something individually brilliant during a game so Mm -hmm. they'll beat a man and stick one in the top corner or they'll score you 30 goals um, just through sheer goal scoring ability all on that off their own back the thing with the defender is it's this kind of modern concept of this star individual defender like Van Dyke, who kind of popularises this, this idea that you mm. sign one defender and all your problems are solved. It's really, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You can't defend as one person. It's a four-man defence. So you have to, no matter what your defensive strategy is, you will always be as good as your weakest defender. Mm-hmm. So mm. one defender on its own doesn't quite fit into the big money signing kind of storyline that we always see because they're, they're always liable to make a mistake. And... You know, if a def- if a centre back produces a an average mistake along the same line, like a something in their brain goes slightly wrong <laughs> in, during a game, the same way that could happen to a striker. Mm-hmm. If it happens to a striker, they'll just miss and everyone will forget. If it happens to a defender, six times out of ten there'll be a goal scoring chance. Three times out of ten there'll be a goal. And for goalkeepers, it's even worse. You've got a big mm-hmm. money goalkeeper, let's say like Kepper at Chelsea, mm-hmm. yeah. he's their club record signing. He only has to make one mistake and the ball's in the back of the net. Mm-hmm. And, but fundamentally, his brain will have done exactly the same thing as a striker who's just missed from eight yards and yeah. you forget about it. That's one of the perils of being in that position. So it's really hard to judge big money centre-halves because they will always be at the mercy of something terrible happening, even if they play really well individually. Mm. They do everything right, they will be let down by something else. And that's why it's really hard to be a very mm. expensive defender and, mm-hmm. and justify your price tag because you will always be dependent on other people. I fully understand that. But the thing is about Harry Maguire is that when I'm watching him, I see him you know usually having a torrid time at least like if the ball is going down his channel he should show 1v1 look I'm a top defender you're not mm. getting anywhere but I see him making silly mistakes what's his bit, what's his major weakness what do you see as like being the most glaring hole in his game yeah like that that channel you right. know when you just flick it in behind he's mm. He it's like he's towing a caravan. Like let's let's be he's not mobile he's, a big guy. he's very very <laughs> like stiff in his movement and mm. If you're playing a high line, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. That sort of um, defender is not going to work in a high line. And I was quick to say this is not going to be a great sign. And obviously, we still have to give him time. And obviously, I do understand that he's a good player. Mm-hmm. Whether he's the standard that Man United want to get to, I'm not entirely convinced. Dej, what are your thoughts about him being made uh, captain at United? Um, again, it's indicative of the crisis at Manchester United. I think mm. Ashley Young was the captain before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inter Milan came in for him. Manchester United offered him a new contract. <laughs> so why didn't you do it you know, before? Mm-hmm. Again, this is reactive, not proactive. Mm-hmm. But again, when you've got you know, your big money signing, your record signing, the centre-back, you'll probably want to hedge your bets and say, you know what, we're giving you the captaincy. We see you at this club in the next five to six he years. He looked like yeah, a captain. In a yeah. really basic way, he, looked, he just looked like a yeah. captain yeah. in the club. It's just massive and it just the armband looked really good on him. <laughs> yeah. that is- sorry, sorry, I don't want to sound cynical or sound like I hate Man United, but how does David De Gea feel? He's been at the club for, what, 10 years now and you're giving Harry Maguire that's just come in in the summer, the captain armband, when David De Gea has been your best player throughout the last 10 years. For me, it's crazy. Like, I, don't how think, can- I don't think goalkeepers need that distraction. I don't think they need that pressure on the Yeah, but we've seen some of the great captains as goalkeepers. Hugo Lloris for France. I know, but I, th- I feel like... but. 
what does Hugo Lloris really do on the, <laughs> on the pitch as a captain? By all means, he could be a very good guiding hand in the dressing room and on mm. the training ground. But do you really need Hugo Lloris to be... And I mean, let's set aside the debate that what, do, what does being a captain really mean? Mm. It's just wearing an armband. You could have 11 captains on the pitch mm. if, it really, if it really mattered. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a very English obsession, the armband. I know mm. like the Italian national team, they'll just give it to whoever's got the most number of caps at that time. Um, we are slightly mm. obsessed with the armband. The England armband is yeah. a huge thing. Yeah, yeah, and that's one yeah. of the reasons why we don't win things is because we're distracted by stupid little things like armbands. But, um, but I, I, see, I see your point about a long-serving player kind of being put out, but I, I think the last thing De Gea needs is, is to worry about, um, you know, kind of dictating his team on, on the pitch. I think Maguire is, is it's a perfect position for a captain to play in, I think. Mm. And also, in the modern day, we're seeing things done by a democracy. So maybe in the changing room, they had a bit of a vote and Harry Maguire came up top I of the I can imagine list. him winning that vote because I imagine they all quite like <laughs> Harry Maguire. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's funny because, like, I don't think a single player has gone to Man United and improved. And I think mm. it's all well and good saying that they need to sign Bruno Fernandes or they need to sign a world-class striker or they need to sign Cavani. But judging their recent purchases, who can you say has actually improved at the club? And I think that's the bigger question because it's all well and good signing Bruno Fernandes. But if he's not playing like the Bruno Fernandes that we see in Portugal, then what's the purpose of that signing? And we mm. saw this with Memphis Depay. He came with a massive reputation, came to the club and he couldn't kick a football. I think Martial's a good example of this as well because I think if Martial had, Martial had gone to, say, Liverpool, he'd be, he'd be huge. He'd, he'd, be, he'd be one of the superstars in, in world football. And not, not necessarily specifically because of Liverpool, but just because they, they're a club clearly who know how to develop and nurture a player. And, mm. and, and not just kind of in an arm round the shoulder kind of way. But Man United, it just looked like they just signed him and said, right, be good. And, it, yeah. and he's been all right. And it just hasn't worked out like that. But it doesn't help if you've got a succession of managers who are completely mm. different in the way they go about things. Because Martial's going to turn up to train and go, right, well, what are you going to do with me now? Mm. Um, it, it can't help if you... And he's still really young. You know, he's, he's still got so many years ahead of him. Mm. But you watch him, you think, what kind of striker are you? I'd, I've always been slightly puzzled by Martial because he came out of nowhere for me. I mean, mm. I'd never heard of him. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's an indication of a good player or not. I'm just mm. saying... I'd never heard of him and then so I was presented with this guy and I thought is he kind of like a sort of wide attacker but he's, he wears the number nine he plays through the middle and he just doesn't suit it at all mm. so he's just a puzzle to me and, and until a proper manager gets hold of him and turns him into into what he should be I someone like me who doesn't understand football well enough clearly <laughs> will only only then mm. will I understand what kind of striker he is and it, he seems to be the perfect example of Man United not developing players mm. yeah when we look at Manchester United I've always said on this podcast that when we look solely at Oli it's a bit of lazy and analysis I think Manchester United is a hierarchical problem mm. when you look at any business and you go up the ladders if people at their correct station are not making the right decisions it's mm-hmm. going to trickle down onto you know the football pitch yes. and what we've seen so far is like a seven year rotting process mm. I mean <laughs> you know when you look at the squad the current squad on the pitch I think they're all part of the five different managers that have been at the club since Fergie left. Mm. Obviously, you've had Fergie, you've had David Moyes, Louis van Gaal, Jose Maria, Mm -hmm. now Oli. So again, we need to be careful not to put too much onus and baggage on Oli because at the end of the day, he just... (laughs) You know, he's the public figure. You're and absolutely I, right. And yeah, I speak absolutely. to a lot of Man United fans that have been to the games and they're saying, you know what, we want the Glazers out. We want Ed Woodward mm. out. But they're still backing Oli because they know that he's been handed a difficult job. It's weird when someone mentions that it's been seven years since they eventually started being a bit of a laughing stock. You know, they, they won the league and then this, everything just switched off. Mm. And seven years, that's like creeping towards a decade. That's creeping towards a generation mm. where Man United have not been good. And that that... 
blows your mind because the longer it goes on, the harder it becomes to turn a massive ship mm. around. Mm. But what I would say, and and as someone who has mildly enjoyed this era of Man United being rubbish, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's always this thought in the back of your mind is that market forces will dictate that they they their revenue is still massive. They still have a lot of money. They're still, by any measure, a huge club. All it takes is maybe a couple of smart people to go in mm-hmm. and it turns around. So for anyone who is enjoying this, whoever is enjoying them just being a bit of a state, then you might as well try and enjoy it now because sooner or later, and it won't take that long, someone will come in and turn them around. And it might not need the Glazers to go away. It might just require someone who who can recruit well and a manager who can deal with the players better. And that's all it will take. It doesn't take that much. With Ed Woodward, I don't think he should leave the club. I think he should go up to the commercial because that's where he's earning his Clearly, court. yeah. What Clearly. he needs to do, bring in someone that knows football. There's a lot of people out of work at the moment that mm. he could employ, but mm. I don't know why he's you not... You like a sporting director? Yeah, sporting director. But this, is, this is another thing. Like I, I talked I talk to you before we start this podcast about how we don't really know what makes a good football manager. We it's such a mystery there, there are so many wrong avenues you can go down when you hire a manager you don't know how good how good he's going to be unless he's an absolute cast iron certainty and there are very few of those the, the same must surely apply to a sporting director what the hell makes a good sporting director um, <laughs> loads of people put forward sort of ex-players the list of names that are united have supposedly approached or sounded out or, mm. or, or have have been linked to getting that sporting director job in United. Bizarre, like Rio Ferdinand. Like, what credentials <laughs> does Rio Ferdinand have to be to be to become the sporting director of a billion-pound football club? Honestly, you need to mm. get the best person for yeah. the job. You need yeah. someone. Yeah. You need someone who has worked at all those levels. Mm. And whether he's been a player or not, it seemingly doesn't matter. It, I, I don't think it's imperative that they were a player, let alone a Man United player. He should be someone who's been there and scouted all over the shop and said, "Right, mm. this is the sort of player mm-hmm. that suits clubs like this, and this is how you get them, and this is how you deal with their contracts, and this is how you train them, and this is how you keep them happy at your club so they don't go and sign for Real Madrid in two years' time." <laughs> and I don't think Rio Ferdinand has any of that. He'll probably mm. he could probably. T- teach Harry Maguire how to defend in the channels that's about it Mm. I think just final point just very very quickly before we close up I think Man United's number one target in the summer should be Adama Traore I think he's a player that fits the profile of Man United he's young He's around 23 now. Just 24, 24. yeah. Just, just turned 24 yeah, yeah. and he's, you know, reaching the peak of his career. So I think that's a signing and a player that's on an upward trajectory. And for me, it makes sense. It means Aaron mm. Wan-Bissaka won't learn how to attack. That's good. He can defend. <laughs> just leave the right That would be a really interesting kind of transfer saga if that happened. If anyone huge came in for Traore. In those situations, like a club like Wolves would say, okay, right, you've got to pay this much because we know you want him and we know you're desperate yeah. and we know he's a big name. So that will go on and they would agree on a huge feat. With Wolves and Troyer, it's a very interesting story because they've really developed him. Mm. This isn't just a case of he got big at yeah, their club. Yeah, yeah. He was fairly aimless winger with with, with an eye-catching <laughs> <laughs> pace. Yeah, yeah. But they have really turned him into something huge and he's got an end product now. He's crossed for... Um, <laughs> Jimenez. Jimenez. Oh, yeah. It was just, yeah, just one of my favourite goals I've seen in such a long time. making me cry. Yeah. It's like an old-fashioned, yeah. brilliant goal yeah, you don't yeah, see yeah. anymore. So if he, if he has this fabled end product in his game now, then yes, he's, he's a, he is a something approaching an 80, 90 million pound player. But Wolves justifiably will say, do you know what? It isn't just about giving us loads of money. We've also turned, we have physically turned him into a brilliant player. You owe us way more than that because mm. you don't just get this finished product for nothing. So I think it, it 
it will sum up all the transfer sagas we've ever seen from a player moving from a mid-table club to a big club. This is why they want huge fees because they, they have put some serious yards into making mm. him what he is. And uh, But he he deserves it. I, I'd love to see him at a big club in, in you know deciding big games because I just love watching it. I tweeted it's about this recently. I haven't, I haven't tuned in to watch one single player so specifically as I have with Troy. No mm. player has thrilled me that much because I prefer I prefer players who have that kind of direct. <laughs> I've always been a guy. I, I always prefer players who can who can put it into the top corner from thirty yard rather than dribble. I've just I've always yeah, preferred yeah, kind of yeah. straight direct players, and mm. he doesn't come more straight and direct than that. I remember Absolutely. a certain journalist saying, you know, he's like a Lamborghini with a learner driver. <laughs> now he's a Lamborghini with a seasoned pro behind the Yeah, he's got a lot of L, sort of, is it P plates on him now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gave Robinson a torrid, torrid time. Yeah. You can see Robinson at the end thinking, yeah, I was yeah. straight. Yeah. Can yeah. I pick up that torrid time? Have you ever had a torrid time? No. <laughs> Cliches. Oh, Cliche uh, alert. I, I mean, it took me, my sat nav said it would take me 54 minutes to drive here and it took me about an hour and 10. Does that count as torrid? I don't know if it does. But I want to know what the threshold for torrid is in just doing a life. But yeah, see, you said that without thinking. And I'm the only person who's ever going to pick you up on that. Sorry. I'm really sorry. What does torrid mean? Honestly, I want to know. Yeah. That's, I think that's a perfect way to end the, to end the episode, isn't it? Um, <laughs> that was fun. It was I really, really, really enjoyed it. Really, it. Really brilliant. Time brilliant. Just flew, flew past. And again, we just want to say a massive thanks um, to you, Adam, for coming down. Thank you. Um, I really, really time. Do appreciate it. You know. Um, also, um, of course, we've had a great time and we've enjoyed our, our time here. But of course, whilst we were recording this episode, we learned of some very, very uh, sad and disappointing news. Um, of course, not the best way for us to uh, end the the, the the episode, but we have to highlight it. And, and that was the news that um, the NBA legend uh, Kobe Bryant uh, passed away um, in a, a helicopter crash. Um, and so, of course, at this point, we just want to close out with just, you know, uh, saying our, our thoughts and, uh, and prayers are with his family and close ones. Um, and, and, and just wanted to sign out on, on that note. So thank you very much for listening in up until this point, listeners. Um, please do continue to share the content amongst your friends, your family members, uh, your work colleagues and all the rest of it. Um, as we always say, we have our uh, content across um, Spotify, SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And if you are listening in on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you leave a five star review. Your engagement is 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 always welcome and it goes a long way towards developing uh, and, 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 and moving the product along. Um, if you're not yet following us on Twitter, please make sure you do. It's at podcast underscore TBG. <coughs> Adam. <laughs> what have I done? Did I get it wrong? <laughs> no, no, no. I think he's, he's alluded to uh, the uh, Adam's not following Callum currently. Do you know what? I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this car in the car on the way here, and I thought I think they're going to mention the fact that I don't follow him because I really, obviously realise I, I don't follow you, <laughs> which, which can be rectified. I'm sure there's. Something I but do you know what? Maybe I don't need to because I see you guys retweeted onto my timeline all oh, the time. So really? wow. I'm basically That's getting nice. the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Why, that why means would I, a lot. Why would I want to follow you and see everything when I'm just getting the cream? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't, maybe I don't need to. Maybe maybe oh, you maybe. just need to earn it. <laughs> you might have a point. You might have an angle there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's a good save, right? Um, and also, if you would like to engage with us in terms of any of the content that we have spoken about or discussed on on the episode, please make sure you use the hashtag TBGPod. I think we covered quite a range mm, of different topics yeah, um, on good. this episode, so I know it's uh, it's definitely going to be one that's going to be interesting to to listen back. 
Um, just looking over at Dot. Do I have the seal of approval? I'm covering everything. Fantastic, guys. Until the next episode, over and out. Peace. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of Ookla speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. 